Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. And after you've listened in, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating and a review. In this episode, we analyse the New South Wales state election, racism and white extremism, how much responsibility should our MPs and the media have for this, and the next big event on the political calendar, the 2019 federal election. How will recent events affect the result? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, fashion icon and billionaire philanthropist. The counting is still going on in the New South Wales state election, but there's been just enough counting for the Liberal National Party to pick up enough seats to just hang on to government. They were hovering between minority and government in their own right, but they've claimed the seat of Dubbo and it looks like they've got to the magical number of 47 seats. On the night, Labor only picked up one seat. They did have a 2.5 swing towards them, but it wasn't anywhere near the 7% swing that they needed to form government. And there'll be a little bit of soul-searching about what they need to do to win back government in four years' time. Do they have the right leadership? And what can they do to convince the electorate in 2023, which is when the next New South Wales election is going to be held? The Coalition has won this election, But is it the strong election result that the media is making it out to be? They actually lost seats. They've allowed the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party to fill in the breach. And they've only just hung on to government. While the final result will be a relief for the coalition, I don't think it's the result that they should be making such a big deal about. It was a fairly muted victory. It did come from nowhere. I think uh, there were a lot of people expecting them to lose. And... It wasn't the slam laid down Mazaire that all governments and all parties hope for. Having said that, they won. It looks like they will have a very slim majority in their own right, although a, a slightly hung parliament looks like it will be the other option. It says a lot about the electorate in New South Wales too. Well, winning three elections in modern politics, that is very, very difficult to do. Three elections in a row. That hasn't happened for a coalition government since the 1971 election, and that's when Robert Askin won his third election in a row. He did actually go on to win a fourth in 1973. Winning government and winning elections is very, very hard. So they previously had two in a row. Now they've got three. That means that they'll be in office for at least... 12 years. It's very odd to see that they've actually lost seats. They're barely clinging on to government, albeit they did win the election. They're barely clinging on to government, but it's been reported as a, it's almost like a landslide victory, and I just can't see that. There's two ways of looking at it, really. For a government that has not achieved anything in eight years, or has not achieved very much in eight years, it's done surprisingly well. Having said that, for a government that has the shadow of the federal Liberal Party, which is seemingly not popular, it did very well. As every party tends to say during state elections, state elections and federal elections aren't related. It's true in one sense. In another sense, it's not true. I'm wondering if the Morrison cabinet is now breathing somewhat of a sigh of relief, thinking that they might be able to do much better in New South Wales than expected. Well, it might be a bit of a false dawn for them because I did notice that during the entire New South Wales state election campaign, Scott Morrison was nowhere to be seen anywhere near the New South Wales government. When they had their campaign launch just last week, 
Morrison didn't actually speak at all. But I did see that when victory was assured, it was all over, bar the shouting, Scott Morrison spoke first, and it was almost like he was the leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party. It was a, a risky move, for sure. Again, he may see that New South Wales is a, a saving grace for, for him. They did distance themselves from him during the campaign, which was a smart move, given some of the results. Mark Latham returned to the upper house, or Mark Latham entering the upper house. The Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party knocking out the Nationals, so it is a real case of the immortal words of Pete Townsend, meet the new boss, same as the old boss in many ways. New South Wales has suddenly become a very interesting state. And the odd point that was being made in the media is that for the Federal Labor Party, there are no seats to be gained in New South Wales at the next federal election based on the New South Wales election result. But that's basically putting the the same amount of votes using the template from the New South Wales election, putting it into the federal seats. And as you mentioned before, there are differences and there are similarities between state elections and federal elections, but they're never the same. They're never held at exactly the same time, although this federal election will be held within two months of the state election that's just been held on the Saturday night. Elections are never never the same. So to say that New South Wales is not an area where federal Labor can pick up seats, I think it was a bit disingenuous from the media. The media have played a very odd role in the state election. Michael Daly was slammed as a racist, yet Mark Latham wasn't. Peter Dutton in the federal level hasn't been, though he clearly is. People who defend convicted pedophiles have been allowed to do so. Uh, without criticism or question. Well, let's have a quick listen to what Michael Daly did say last September. Now, I have to point out that he wasn't actually the leader of the Labor Party when he made this statement. There's a transformation happening in Sydney now where our kids are moving out and foreigners are moving in and taking their jobs. Our young children will flee, and who are they being replaced with? They're being replaced by young children, young, young people from typically Asia with PhDs. I don't want to sound xenophobic. It's not a xenophobic thing, it's an economic question. So there we have Michael Daly making the comment about Chinese PhDs taking the jobs of Australians. I can't see what's wrong with having a highly educated workforce, but those statements were made at a meeting at the Katoomba branch of the Labor Party. I don't know who made the recording, but it lobbed into the final week of the state election campaign. There's no excuse for Daly's statement, but you'd think that MPs of a mainstream party would be able to have the discipline to not make these types of statements that will cause them trouble down the track. He blew the election for Labor in that last week. In an electorate that has put Mark Latham into the upper house, Daly loses the election on racism. It says a lot of very interesting things about the electorate. I also think it shows you can lose an election on one comment. It's often not the comment that the media say it is, but sometimes it is. Daly had been doing very well up until that last week. And how important is that final week of a campaign? And I point that out in the context of pre-polling for the state election was around 25%. That's actually a very, very high number. In the by-elections late last year for the federal seat of Wentworth, that was around 30%. Whatever happens in that final week seems to have less of an impact than it would in previous elections, but it seems seems like it still ends up being a factor. So 
A lot of people have pointed out that Michael Daly did have a very poor final week and it seems like that was the case. But is it similar to, say, Mark Latham's final week in 2004 when he was the leader of the Labor Party with his forestry plan and that infamous handshake that he made with John Howard? How important is that final week in a, in a campaign these days? I think it is important. I mean, a lot of people do pre-poll and I think, too, that the idea that you can go in before Election Day and cast your vote... I think that's a really good idea because there are people who, for many reasons, find the Saturday a struggle. Old people in nursing homes, for example, shift workers, people who know that they'll be away on that weekend. And about 25%, so one in four people had already cast their vote of the vote, unless you know nearly everybody voted one way, isn't going to decide the election really. So I think that last week is still important. And it must also influence the the electoral process in so many different ways because if your leader has had such a poor week in that final week, that if, that filters through to people on the ground handing out the how-to-vote cards, the psychology of everyone that's working on the campaign. And conversely, if you have a very good final week of the campaign, which seems to be the case for the Liberal Party, relatively speaking, that affects the workers on the ground as well. They're more enthusiastic when they hand out the how-to-vote cards and those sort of issues. So, so it probably works in so many different ways where it affects the media reporting of the electoral campaign, but it's also a psychological process for the MPs and all the workers on the ground as well. It was funny, though. A lot of electorates seemed to, and this was just going on what I could see on social media and from what people were telling me, a lot of electorates seemed to have people turning up early to vote, which generally is the sign of a landslide or a massive victory from one side or the other. In this case, it wasn't. So maybe Saturday was just a day where everybody thought they'd get it over and done with and then not have to think about it for the rest of the day. And it was a reasonably hot day as well, definitely in Sydney. New South Wales, the state election, that's almost done and dusted. It's all over bar the final shouting. But what can be read into the 2019 federal election for either party? Scott Morrison, as I mentioned before, he was invisible for virtually all of the New South Wales state campaign. And that's that's understandable on some level, but he was definitely there on the winner's podium on Saturday night. Bill Shorten, the opposition leader for Labor, he said that nothing can be read into the result for the New South Wales state election. Who's right in this situation? Labor has just lost, you know, a drover's dog election in New South Wales. So if I was federal Labor, I would be making sure that everybody was completely disciplined, absolutely engaged on the major issues and uh, united on the major issues. If I was the Liberal Party, I would be looking at the fact that some of the things that seem to be unpopular may not be unpopular. It would be very easy to become a bit relaxed from a federal liberal level, given that New South Wales state government didn't really deserve to win. Well, they might not have deserved to to win, but they're actually there. So it all gets down to mathematics in politics. They've, They've won the most seats. They might not have won the most votes, but they've definitely got the most seats. And Labor deserved to lose in the end anyway. If they couldn't beat them, they deserved to lose. And I think that's something that Bill Shorten and the rest of the Labor team have to look at, that you can still lose an unlosable election. And I think that's a very strong message for them. And for Scott Morrison, you can win an unwinnable one. 
You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at Scott Morrison and racism. We had the unfortunate scene in New Zealand last week where a homegrown Australian terrorist gunned down 50 Muslim worshippers in two Christchurch mosques, all in the name of white supremacy and the so-called Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. The incident reverberated all around the world and it's called into question the responsibility and influences of politicians who for too long have been too easily involved in race baiting and targeting minority groups in Australia. They've tried to create discord to boost their electoral appeal to fringe elements in the community. While they weren't the ones pulling the trigger, the two key figures that have done their best to inflame racial discontent over the years are the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and Minister for Home Affairs, Peter Dutton. The events in Christchurch have focused upon the actions of Scott Morrison over the past decade. But is it fair that we place this intense scrutiny over Morrison's words and actions? He has to govern for all Australians, as does Bill Shorten if he becomes Prime Minister, as did Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd, John Howard, Paul Keating, Bob Hawke, Malcolm Fraser, Gough Whitlam, right all the way back to Edmund Barton. Australia has been a multicultural country since 1788, but officially since 1972. So there are people from all over the world of all different backgrounds, who live here, who vote here, who pay tax here, who obey the law here, who are good citizens here. And multiculturalism has been one of the things that has made Australia great. There is a undercurrent, though, of racism here. It's a very complex topic. And it's not necessarily just an older generation. This gets characterised as, oh, it's older people. It's not. There are, of course, older people who think that. There are younger people who think it. There are middle-aged people who think it, who believe that Australia is essentially an Anglo country and that anyone not of an Anglo background is somehow not a part of it. Now, the big issue, of course, is soft racism, in which people say things that are racist, but they don't actually think that it is racist and a lot of people who aren't affected by it don't think it's racist. Well the most recent kerfuffle goes back to a 2010 Liberal National Party shadow cabinet meeting where all of the ministers were asked to bring in three ideas to the meeting to improve the vote of the Liberal National Coalition. It just seems a little bit implausible to me for a minister or a shadow minister such as Scott Morrison to come into a meeting where they're asked to improve their vote and for him to claim that he wanted to improve the vote for the coalition by trying to reduce anti-Muslim sentiment within the community. This seems to be at odds with his actions over the past eight years since that shadow cabinet meeting. So during the... And it actually goes back to a previous time when Scott Morrison was the director of the New South Wales Liberal Party as well. So this is before he entered Parliament. But Scott Morrison, allegedly, he said to one of the Liberal Party candidates, who's of an Afghan background, 
He said, we both hate Pauline Hanson, but the best way to destroy someone like Pauline Hanson is to express policies that make us look like her. That's a comment from 2001. That's the, that's the famous uh, Tampa or infamous Tampa election. In 2011, he also complained bitterly about the Labor government at that time paying for flights and funerals for asylum seekers that had died in the Civ 221 disaster where 48 people lost their lives just off Christmas Island. He actually announced that asylum seekers have got typhoid and communicable diseases and Australia should be fearful of them coming to the mainland. He also claimed that asylum seekers are carrying guns, they've got wads of cash and he saw them with large displays of jewellery. When he was Prime Minister, he talked about the vile presence of Islam, the the so-called shady character who's at the periphery of, of the mosque. These, uh, I, I could go on, I could probably go on for about half an hour or so, just getting all these quotes from Scott Morrison over the past 10 years or so, from the time that he was Shadow Minister, then when he was Immigration Minister, when he was actually Treasurer, and now as Prime Minister. So his actions since that Shadow Cabinet meeting back in 2010, they don't seem to be consistent with someone who claims that they were trying to reduce anti-Muslim sentiment within the community. I'd say he's actually trying to increase it. The other thing I didn't mention, of course, was the first piece of legislation passed in the federal parliament in 1901. In fact, it was the second or third. There were a couple of tiny administrative things that needed to be sorted out. But the first major piece of legislation was the white Australia policy, modelled on the white America policy. What's not commonly known is that the white Australia policy was used as the model for immigration policy in Nazi Germany uh, in the 1930s. Australia was looked at as a way of how you manage this stuff. And this is a massive shadow over any discussion of racism in Australia. Scott Morrison taps right into those people who, many of whom would never say it and would be horrified to think that you'd think it, but at some level think that the white Australia policy was a useful policy to have. Now, the arguments like immigrants bring disease, immigrants bring crime, these are arguments that date back to the 1850s, the 1830s, early 1800s. We can look at, in Australia, Chinese uh, immigrants to the gold mines. All of this was said about them. We can look at the great Eastern European and Mediterranean migration here. It was all said about Greeks and Italians and Yugoslavs and, and Polish people, and it was said about the Vietnamese refugees in the 70s and 80s. None of it was true. It's funny how the same arguments resonate again and again and again and again, and it's never true. And no country in the world is free from, from racism. It would be most unwise to think that there is the perfect country. To use Scott Morrison's words, we can't sugarcoat this, this whole process and be naive about it. Having a fear or discomfort about the other, that's a natural human condition. So it's more about trying to alleviate the conditions for racism and extremism to exist. And Australia has been one of the most successful multicultural countries in the world historically. There's always an opportunity there, it seems, for opportunistic members of parliament to stoke the fear within the community for, in the hope that they'll boost their profile and in the hope that they'll be rewarded electorally. 
That's not only members of parliament, there's also the mainstream media that are to blame for this process as well. If we are going to apportion blame for heightened racism and extremism within the community, Channel 7 on their breakfast program, they actually invite Pauline Hanson each week to talk about all of these issues that concern her. So she's got a platform every week. I think the mainstream media has normalised some of these extremists. Uh, We had Blair Cottrell, he's the racist from Melbourne. He's actually proud to be a racist as well, but he was on Sky Television a few months ago being interviewed by the former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, Adam Giles. We had Milo Yiannopoulos appearing as a questioner on the ABC's Q&A program. There was also a Four Corners episode with Steve Bannon, interviewed by Sarah Ferguson a few months ago as well. So... These people do exist in the community, they're out there, but is it wise for mainstream media to encourage these people? Like, we do need to scrutinise them and, and look at them, but is there a better way that we can do this? Waleed Ali is often called a Muslim television presenter, despite whatever topic he's talking about. If you're having a debate on theology or faith or something, you know, here's Waleed Ali, he's a Muslim, he's so-and-so, he's a... A Catholic, he's, he's someone else who's a, she's a Presbyterian, that's probably okay. But if he's talking about federal government, if he's talking about the many things that they talk about on the project, I wouldn't have thought his faith was relevant to the discussion. The fact that it has to be, that it is pointed out, I think points back to that assumption that unless otherwise stated, the television presenter is white and Anglo. And of course, in Australia, too, Muslim means Middle Eastern, whether you're a Maronite Christian, uh, a Parsi, uh, or any of the other religious groups that exist in the Middle East. There's racism that we're not even, that a lot of people wouldn't be aware of. The media has a big accountability in this. We have a very overtly racist media. And then a sanctimonious and hypocritical media too. When when New Zealand happened, who did they blame? Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, without thinking that having Miranda Devine rail against Muslims or having Andrew Bolt tell us how terrible immigration is come through. And Andrew Bolt, of course, was found guilty of racism in the courts. So we can call him a racist. The mainstream media has always been calling out social media to say that it's irrelevant. It's not part of the overall process of promoting news and and spreading information about political matters and things like that. So they've always been trying to downplay social media and its role, and especially independent, smaller independent media outlets as well. When the mainstream media is being directly blamed for adding to and fueling discontent about anti-Muslim immigration and those sort of issues... They're quite happy to blame other people. They seem to suggest that social media is very important in this situation. So they're trying to eat their cake and eat it as well. I don't think everyone's going to accept that. I think they're quite culpable in this whole process, as are quite a few irresponsible conservative members of parliament. Oh, for sure. I mean, they point to Fraser Anning as an extremist and and an outlier, but he wouldn't be there if he was the only one espousing this spectrum of views. Now he's more extreme than others, but it doesn't take much to get to that level of extremity. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud, YouTube and Spotify, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. 
Up next, we look at how recent events in Australia and New Zealand will affect the next federal election. The New South Wales election is all over and there are two big events coming up in federal politics. The 2019 budget, which should be closely followed by the 2019 federal election. The budget is due to be announced on April the 2nd. There will be a short period of promotion in the media about how great the budget is and speculation about whether the purported surplus is going to be real or just a charade. Then Scott Morrison is likely to make the drive to Yarralumla to have a cup of tea with the Governor-General and call an election for May 11 or May 18th. We've predicted an impending thrashing for the Coalition at the next federal election, whenever it's due to be held. But does the result from the New South Wales election offer them any hope? And are there any other events that could have an influence in that election? They would be seeing a little bit of relief from New South Wales. New South Wales has shown itself to be a more conservative state. Queensland turned around the biggest majority ever from Campbell Newman into one almost as big for Anna Palaszczuk in one term. The Victorian Labor Party trounced the Liberal opposition easily in in an second election which traditionally sees the government lose one or two seats. They increased their majority. New South Wales sees the Liberal Party scrape back in. Now, how does this translate federally? If people vote for minor parties on the right, that helps the current government. If people vote for independents who lean to the right, that will help the government. New South Wales is a big state with a lot of electorates. So some of those New South Wales seats that even on the Friday before the state election, we might have thought were absolutely finished, may scrape through, meaning that we might get another minority Liberal government. I still can't see it happening, but anything can happen. So my reading of it is, because a lot of the people in the media were saying, forget New South Wales for the Labor Party, best look to Queensland, Victoria, any other state. I think this is actually quite a poor reading by these media experts. People seem to tend to forget in the media that the federal government at the moment is in minority. So that would mean that they would need to win seats federally. And even if the state results in New South Wales are replicated at the federal level, that's two, they've already lost two seats. So New South Wales is not looking good for the, for the coalition. It might not be looking great for Labor, but it's not looking so good for the coalition. So read into that what you, what you wish. It could end up being a situation where in, there are more independent MPs to come out of New South Wales. Now, my, my reading of the Saturday night election in New South Wales was that the coalition government, federally, they're probably hoping for a similar result to the 1993 state election. Now, this is going back some time ago. The state WA Labor government, they lost that election, but it was actually a really tiny swing against them. Prime Minister of the day, Paul Keating, he announced the federal election on the Monday after the WA election, and the rest is history. Paul Keating won the unwinnable election against John Hewson in 1993. Scott Morrison doesn't have the same situation happening for him. He's, he's not Paul Keating for a start. He's under the pump. They're in minority government. 
1993, and I hope people listening into this podcast will remember that far back. That election was a contest of economic and social ideas. This time around, it looks like it will be a contest of competence and stability. I, I can't see how they can gain the seats necessary to get back into government. I can see a potentiality where they go back to being a minority government, maybe in a different configuration of, of seats and votes. But I still think that's a long shot. But that's maybe what they'll try and strategize for. As the New South Wales election shows, the National Party brand is, if not dead, then very sick. Key national seats went to either the uh, shooters, fishers and farmers or independents. One of Barnaby Joyce's uh, state equivalent seats, the seat of Lismore, went to an independent, for example. Dubbo is still in thrall. It looks like this morning an extra, this is on the Monday, an extra 2,300 votes went to the Nationals member. But Matthew Dickerson, the independent, gave them a very good run and, and nearly took it from them. Dubbo has been national... It's a very strong national seat. In terms of that type of thing, the Liberal Party cannot rely on coalition numbers. Well, there's a whole lot of factors in other states as well. If you look at the electoral pendulum, even if they just lost one or two seats in New South Wales, or even if they picked up one or two seats in New South Wales, there's still a whole range of seats in other states where it's almost like they need to put so many fingers in so many dikes that it's, it's impossible to see the, the dam wall holding up for, for too long. So all they need is a couple of seats to be lost in WA, which is very likely, one or two seats in South Australia, which is very likely, Victoria, very likely, Queensland, very likely. So it's just impossible to see how they can hold on to anything here. But as we keep saying, politics is a contest between two major parties in Australia, so anything can still happen. But if we're looking at New South Wales as a pointer, the state election on, on Saturday night as a point of what to what might happen in the federal election, I don't think there's too much comfort there for the for the coalition. But there is one final large event coming up and that's the twenty nineteen budget. Budgets don't seem to have as much impact as people think they do. The federal government, they've already telegraphed their intention to have a surplus. Now, whether that's real or imaginary, we'll, we'll never know because they probably won't be around to see the results of their budget. But that's given the media enough time to pick apart their idea about the, the surplus. So I think they actually telegraphed their idea of this surplus uh, budget. They telegraphed that too far in advance. They might have a bit of a sugar hit for a couple of days after the budget is released on April the 2nd. I can't see it having too much of an effect. They've doubled the debt since uh, they got in um, with no, with nothing really to show for it. There's been a lot of talk. The NBN, which should have been one of the world's great infrastructure projects, has turned into a fizzer. The Adani mine, which they claim will have no government money in it, and will be an ecological disaster and most likely a financial disaster. There's the asylum seekers and moving from Nauru to Christmas Island. It's very hard to find substantial major policy achievements from the government. Well, especially for Scott Morrison, because he's only been in office since August last year. And that's 
simply not enough time for a prime minister to boost their electoral standing, boost their appeal to the to the public, and and also during the interview with Waleed Ali on the project, and ever since the Christchurch attacks, Scott Morrison has been floundering. Mm. His default position has always been to attack Bill Shorten, to blame Labor, and to weave a message of border security and keeping Australia safe. But this time around, he was lost for words. His natural propensity is always to go on the attack. And it's almost like when he was in a situation where he couldn't blame everything on Bill Shorten, he just simply floundered. Compare his responses with the responses coming from New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and it's been like chalk and cheese. Scott Morrison has been severely exposed over the past week. And maybe this is where we can compare uh, Michael Daly in New South Wales and Scott Morrison, two men out of their depth trying to find trying to find their feet with the tides going against them. Scott Morrison, of course, was an even odder choice for Prime Minister than Tony Abbott, in that Tony Abbott, at least on paper, had some qualification. Whether he was a good Prime Minister or a bad Prime Minister is a, a debate for another day, but if you looked at just his qualifications and experience, you'd think, well, yes, this is someone who might have, who might be qualified for the role of prime minister. When you looked at his performance and his his approach, that might change your mind a bit. But in terms of what he had achieved, there was a sense of qualification. Scott Morrison didn't have any of this. He'd had a highly unsuccessful tenure outside of politics, and he was a middling minister who had no policy achievements whatsoever and was seen as an extremist within the party. And we're now seeing the fruits of this labour, that he doesn't know what to do, he's not quite sure how to do it, and he's been thrown into a circumstance which is outside of all of his instincts. He claims to have done a lot of work with the, quote, Muslim community. None of these communities have stood up and said, well, actually... He did help us and he was good and, you know, we're really appreciative of it. Well, we haven't seen any evidence of that at all. Also, this week we didn't actually have a news poll. News poll comes out on a fortnightly basis. Now, they did do some work on the New South Wales state election, which is what they always do, of course. So perhaps they thought, well, if we poll for the state and if we poll for federal politics it might dilute either of those so let's wait for a little while so but it would have been interesting to see what sort of effect Scott Morrison's week which as far as I can see it was a week from hell for him it would have been interesting to see how that would have affected the polling but I guess we would just have to wait for another week. Next uh, news poll won't be markedly different from what this one would have been in terms of polling he's in terminal decline. There may be a bit of a dead cat bounce, but the party's been in terminal decline since at least the last election. Polling, of course, is not elections, but it's getting harder and harder to see that there's any way out of it for him. And he's thrown everything they have. He can't claim to be a good economic manager. Every serious economist has debunked that. He can't claim to be tough on immigration, except too tough on certain parts of immigration. He can't claim to be a popular leader because he's not. He's barely known. There's a great uh, news clip where he walks up to a, a fellow and the fellow says, who are you? I'm ScoMo. 
okay and walks off. But mind you, that actually did happen to Malcolm Turnbull as well when he was Prime Minister. No, for sure. While Scott Morrison can be held responsible for some of it, he's not responsible for all of it. The party, as it slurched further to the right, is starting to alienate the centre. And that's in Australia, that's always a very dangerous thing. They're losing their moderates, and it will be interesting to see what happens. This might be the right thing. The polls could be wrong, and it could be that the Australian electorate is further to the right than we'd all like to think. As we like to say, there's only one poll that counts, and that's the actual election. Now, by the time we do our next podcast, the election will have been announced. So that's in another fortnight. And that's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Bye.